Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For he brings some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Well, at this time we're going to dismiss children four through first grade. So if you're in here and you're looking for your chance to leave, it's now. If you're small. Well, I have a distinct memory growing up of going to Christian Family Day at Bush Stadium where, um, yeah, so the St. Louis Cardinals play their professional baseball games at Bush Stadium. And I don't remember how old I was. I don't remember if we went more than one time, several times. Uh, but I remember the Saturday afternoon as it ended, I, I can visualize the stadium. You know, you're up high, game ends, you get to come down lower. And you're lower in the stands, and you hear the musicians, and you hear the speakers. I remember one of the speakers was named Dave Dravecki, who was a former professional baseball player. 
the name, I, you don't forget. I had to look up again how to spell it. I think I remember our church promoting the event. I think I remember several families from our church. Uh, we live in Jefferson City, two-hour road trip, like kind of like here to Philly to go watch the game. And I bring it up because I can sort of imagine the audience. Uh, at least I think I can. I, I, I can imagine the types of people who were going there, church-going people, and then the friends of those who were invited by the church-going people. And so many in the audience would have been, I presume, Christian. And those who weren't were probably sympathetic to the message of Christianity, even if they themselves were not Christians. Now, as a Christian pastor, uh, if I were famous, if I had written books, if this church was huge, I could imagine being invited to speak at Christian Family Day at the St. Louis Cardinals baseball stadium. Not that I daydream about these sorts of things. <laughs> or the Phillies, Christian Family Day, if they have such a thing. Which is not a statement about Philly. It's a statement about Major League Baseball. I don't know if anybody has them anymore. <laughs> but I can imagine the sorts of words I would want to say to draw near to the audience. To give a compelling presentation, so I would hope, of who Jesus is, why he matters, how he's awesome, how he changes people's lives. I can imagine doing that if, however, I were invited to speak to the employees of Amazon, or Apple, or Facebook. Say, if they have this venue for outside speakers, I'd struggle to know where to begin. If those huge companies, companies on the front lines of business, and design and cultural events wanted to hear from an evangelical pastor just because they were intrigued that such people still exist or that Christians believe what they actually say they believe, I'm not so sure I would feel at home in that event. It's not my wheelhouse. It's not an invitation I daydream about. Not that I actually daydream about the other one. <laughs> now, Google has just such an event. And over the years, they've invited Christian pastors. Um, they've invited Timothy Keller, a longtime pastor in Manhattan, to come and speak to them about Christianity. Now, here at our church, we tend to like Timothy Keller, more or less. I want to ask the question, what would you say to the audience of Google? Or Apple? Or Amazon? What would you say to speak to and draw near to that audience. Okay, so, so not to go to that audience and speak to your tribe where you tell these people what's what, but you're really speaking back here to your tribe, which is so common. But what would you actually say to draw near to that audience? To give a compelling presentation of who Jesus is, why he's awesome, how he changes lives, I watched just a few minutes from Keller's presentation in 2016 when his book, Making Sense of God, New York Times bestseller book comes out, Making Sense of God, they get invited, he speaks. And I just thought to myself, wow, that's a guy who knows how to take the message of Christianity, now the actual message of Christianity, not change it, but bring it to an audience in a way that they can actually hear it and receive it and understand it and be challenged by it, to use words and language that would make sense to them. That's not something every Christian, every author, every professional athlete, even every pastor can do well. 
but it's something we see the Apostle Paul can do really well. A prominent feature in the book of Acts is Christian preaching. There have been many speeches along the way through our journey in the book of Acts so far. There have been several by Peter. There was one by Stephen in chapter 7 where he's killed after the benediction of his sermon. The Apostle Paul has had several sermons or messages or speeches alluded to. But here is the longest transcript, so to speak, of any of his sermons so far. Later in the book of Acts, Paul's going to have several monologues. But they're going to be given primarily to Jewish audiences, those steeped in the Hebrew Bible. But this audience, however, knows little about Christianity. And Paul loves to be the one to show them Jesus. Now look at how the passage begins. And just this full disclosure, we're just going to be reading the passage in either a verse or a chunk at a time. So if you have a Bible, you're going to pull that out. That would be helpful as one of the few, or you can use a tablet or phone or whatever you have. Verse 16, the passage begins like this. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, come back to that in a second, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. A few things to notice. First, we're told he's waiting for them. What does that mean? Paul was alone in Athens so he had been, this is last week's sermon, he had been in Thessalonica until an angry mob ran him out of town. And he shows up in a town called Berea. And that angry mob in Thessalonica follows him to Berea. And in Berea, the Christian leaders say, you should just get out of town even further. They send him over to Athens and he's there alone waiting for his traveling companions. And we read that, quote, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. In other words, he looked around and he got angry. This week, I saw many images, as likely many of you did as well, that made me angry. The idolatry bound up in the waving of a Confederate flag in the lobby of our nation's capital provoked my spirit. Just to mention one. Athens was a city full of idols. Thousands of them, we're told. Once you to listen to a few verses from one of Paul's letters written about this time, this chunk of time, to another city, city of Corinth. He wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And, and he wrote about idolatry to them. And, and on the one hand in chapter 8 he says, idols are nothing. They're like a thing that's nothing. They're, 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 just, they're, they're a non-thing thing. And then later in chapter 10 as he's discussing this thing that's happening in their church context and how they're to look at it from God's perspective, he, he has this to say. That, demon, that idolatry is actually behind the scenes demonically driven. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, he writes. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
14, 15, and verse 20. So, Paul writes those words to a church in Corinth, which is not far from Athens. And, and I'm reading it to give you a background so that when we're talking about idolatry and how Paul looks at the world and understands it and how really we should look at it too, Paul's looking out in Athens and he's seeing people who think they're doing something harmless, you know, worshipful and wise, but otherwise harmless, but he's concerned that behind their acts of piety, behind their devotion, he sees a dangerous idolatry, which he understands to be demonically driven, whether the audience themselves, the participants in the worship, see it that way or not, or more likely don't see it that way. Which causes me to reflect on Harrisburg. What idols do we look out and see here? We have the eyes to see it. But to put it that way is probably too monolithic to paint with too broad of a brush. Harrisburg has too many subcultures, subcommunities to say the idols of Harrisburg. So it should be more specific. What idols exist in our capital culture? What idols exist in the downtown urban hipster crowd? What idols exist on Allison Hill? Or what about Lindlestown or the West Shore or Perry County? What about the neighborhoods you live in? What, what, what idols do your neighbors have? Now they're not statues, probably. I don't know the answer to those questions for the idols for each sub-community here, but what we see in this passage is that Paul had drawn near to his audience enough to know who they really are, what they struggle with, and how God wanted to meet with them. Paul knows and loves the lost people around him. And this knowing and loving, he's following in the footsteps of Christ. Which we'll say more about at the end. Look, look at verse 17 with me. It's the first word. You put your finger on the first word in there. We're reading from the English Standard Version. The first word is so. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The first word, verse 17, is so. Some versions of the Bible will say, therefore. Both good translations. Paul's anger leads him to do something productive. He drew near. Christians do something productive with our provocations. We draw near. Even though Paul is alone and without his traveling companions, as he waits for them, we read that he, quote, he used his time to reason in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and on the other hand, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. He goes to the religious centers of society, the synagogues. He goes to the secular centers of society, the marketplace. He goes to Christian Family Day, and he goes to Google. I want you to notice that phrase, those who happen to be there. Now this will become more clear throughout Paul's preaching. But Paul believes that because God loves to draw near to people, there ain't no such thing as random. Life might feel random, but because God loves people, Paul believes that when he goes into the marketplace, whoever happens to be there doesn't just so happen to be there. Please, God is seeking Look, look with me at verses 18 through 21. You see some of the people who just happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, verse 21 is something of a summary verse. Luke interjects. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the thought leaders of his day invite Paul to come speak to them, to give a presentation on what's often called Mars Hill. Mars Hill is the Latin name for the Hill of Ares, the Areopagus. You can Google those and just see pictures of them until they're in ruins and just off to the side of the Acropolis of Parthenon. I mean, I imagine some of you might have even been there, seen these things in person. I just look at pictures. They looked impressive. Imagine in their day, far more impressive. But this group of what I'll call Harvard Law professors think he's a hillbilly. They characterize his preaching as a babbler simply because he's a Christian, even though Paul is a highly educated Roman citizen. Paul just didn't attend the right schools, their schools, they thought. Still others say Paul preaches, quote, foreign divinities, because he was preaching about Jesus in the resurrection, verse 18. Now, just an aside from the sermon, just an aside here from the passage, it's important. This caricature of Paul's preaching as being about foreign deities, divinities. Okay, what does that show? Why does that matter? What's that, why is that little, just, okay, Paul's over here, blah, 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 blah. Hey, what's that guy talking about? He's talking about foreign divinities. Why is that important to note something? It shows that they understood Paul, even if they disagreed with him, even if they thought he was dumb, to be teaching that Jesus was, in fact, divine. Let's see again. The notion that Jesus was divine, that he was, as the Nicene Creed would say a couple hundred years later, very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, was not just some later church dogma. The deity of Christ is intrinsic. It's right there inside the early preaching in the early church. It's there at the birth of the church in the book of Acts. Indeed, it's the divine Jesus who gives birth to the church. Paul was saying Jesus is God, which they characterize as preaching foreign divinities. In other words, don't let anyone ever tell you that this idea that Jesus was God is some made-up thing 300 years later, a power struggle over authority and church and all these things, and the early church never believed such things. Yeah, they did. Close that parenthesis. Luke, the narrator of the book of Acts, right? So he's narrating the book of Acts. He's with Paul almost entirely from chapter 16, verse 10, through the end of the book. But he's not here with him in Athens. But he gives this little summary line. It's a bit of a zinger, maybe. 
Verse 21, now the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's not a compliment, by the way. And it would be pretty easy, though, to scoff at them and say, just look at you, you Athenians. I'll tell you what, though, I went this week, got on Yahoo.com, webpage, spent some time on BuzzFeed, and we could, we could just keep enumerating the different web pages. Um, I'm not so sure that exact same statement could be said of huge portions of our society. This, this is a sermon. This is a message for us. So as we keep going, we read Paul's speech. Now, it's only a few minutes long to read, so I'm going to assume it's what we might call the Cliff Notes version. Right? He, he clearly probably would have spoken much longer than this. Paper was expensive, and the book of Acts is already long. So we're just giving the highlights, but here are the highlights. Verse 22 through 25. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, Marcel, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are re- very religious. That's not a dig. He's drawing near to me. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live by temples made by man. And you just see him gesturing, perhaps, to the temple that stood just behind, beside him. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed it. Since he himself gives up all mankind, life and breath and everything. Now I want to come back to the way this sermon began. We're going to, I'll read the second chunk of the sermon in just a minute. But I want to come back to something I said before. How did the passage begin, verse 16? Paul's spirit was provoked within him, meaning he was angry. He was amped. He was ready to launch this tweet storm of rage. Always they were wrong. So I ask the question, how would you begin a message about Christianity to people who were doing things that disgusted you? Indeed, you believe disgusted God. As our country becomes more polarized, I want you to pick someone in your mind, not just theoretically, like have a group of people in your mind that makes you angry. And now picture how you would address them if you were given the microphone as a spokesperson for Jesus. How would you dress a crowd at a gay pride parade? Or a gathering of the Black Lives Matter organization? Or an alt-right gathering? Or a group of young progressive Democrats? Each of those groups is not the same. But I suspect that each, at least one of them pokes your buttons. Maybe just being here at church, maybe you were invited by someone, you're not a Christian, you're here at church, just trying to check things out, and maybe just the thought of listening for a half hour to an evangelical pastor pokes your buttons. But bless your heart <laughs> for coming here. And put it. I would tell you, just to be candid, the perception of evangelical pastors, and I'm, I, I'm a pastor at, at Community Evangelical Free Church, right? Like that is in our name. The perception of evangelical pastors pokes my buttons. 
Again, my point is not to equate all these groups, but it is to say that when Paul speaks to his audience, he is not beginning neutral. Like, he feels a certain way towards them, namely anger. Legitimate as it was, what we see ooze out of his words is love and care as he speaks about God. What they called unknown, he wants to proclaim to them as known. In verses 24 and 25, Paul speaks of what theologians call God's aseity, meaning God's independence. Now, aseity is a small word that's a big word. It's not used very often. It means God's not needy. The maker of heaven and earth, Paul says, doesn't live in temples made by man, is not served by human hands, as though he needed anything. But despite God's aseity, his, his independence, his self-generating life within God's, within himself, his existence of God by himself, he's God. Paul says he's also near. God himself, Paul continues, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is near. That's the point he wants to emphasize. Despite Paul, God's transcendence, his nearness, his eminence. You read the rest of his speech. 26 through 31. And he, that's God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? How do you do that? Verse 27. That they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him. Yet he is not actually far off from each one of us. For, and then you'll notice there's quotation marks around these. But they're not just Paul's, they're actually, some, he's quoting someone else. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. And another quote, then a quote. For we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul's sermon here, his message, he moves from God's creation, from creation and God's independence to God's nearness, and then to Every human, the entire human race from Adam, including those who are there in Athens, including those who are, of us who are here today, and he's talking about every person who's ever lived, ever, ever lived anywhere, and Paul says that where each person lived, and when each person lived, God has sovereignly orchestrated that, the when and the where, so that God could be known. So that people will seek him, because as Paul says, he's not far off. That's true today, church. Where you live, when you live, where you work, where you grew up, that you're here this morning. All of this designed by God that you would draw near to Him and He would draw near to you. You're not alone. He knows the plans He has for you. In verse 29, Paul continues to draw near to his audience by quoting two of their poets. First, Epimenides. And then Aratus, I didn't know that. Comes from a footnote. In the English Standard Bible, you can tease out the 
the commentaries in here are more about that. Epimenides apparently said, in him we live and move and have our being, and Aratus, another Greek poet, said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, this rhetorical move by Paul, what he's doing, it'd be like quoting Jeff Bezos, or other popular people in our culture, Elon Musk, or perhaps novelists like Stephen King, or J.K. Rowling, or a poet like Maya Angelou, or some other popular figure who, when you quote their name, they have some weight, Stephen Hawking. And you say their name, and you give them a quote, and they say something. And, and what Paul's doing here is not saying, like, everything this person over here has said, I agree with him. For example, Aratus, that quote, um, we're all his offspring, I think originally refers to Zeus. So what Paul is saying here is not that everything these people have said is true. What he's saying is what, there's a glimmer in what they're saying that's true, and I'm trying to take what they've said and build upon that, because in God's common grace, they're hitting on something that is true. There's a pointer to what they're saying that points to capital T truth. And that's why I titled this sermon what I did. I called it The True Myth. What these people were hoping for, what they were longing for, what the men of the Areopagus hoped for, what Epimenides and Aratus wrote about, what the people of Athens worshipped, even though they did it through an idol titled, an idol to an unknown God, Paul is saying to them, it's true. The myth you only know as a whisper, I proclaim to you is true. And there's a whole lot more to it. This world is not random, but it's ordered. And it bends towards a relationship with God. And if you would seek Him, if you would seek Him, God is holy and just, and so He's fixed a day which is going to judge the world. But there's this guy named Jesus who took away sins, and He rose from the dead after He died. And, well, it seems that's where they cut Him off in the sermon. sort of ends abruptly. Imagine why. Verse 32, 33, and 34, the last part of our passage, read this way. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you about this again. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This threefold response should set expectations for Christian ministry. Some will mock, some will be intrigued, and some, praise the Lord, will become Christians. They have names, families, jobs, locations. They're real people. Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and Paul just says, and the other. They have names, and they have names here among us. I mentioned before that Paul went to the synagogue in the marketplace to speak about Jesus, quote, every day with those who happened to be there, verse 17. Think it just happened to be there? Think that's what Paul thinks? If you couple that verse, verse 17, with what Paul says in verses 26 and 27, where he says that God determines the, the when and the where of where people would live so they would seek God, we're reminded that the universe is not random. 
The universe is not merely this pinball machine where there's one reaction and another reaction and people are just bouncing off of others and there's collisions of cause and effects and then maybe everything got wound up and started but God, if He's there, is just some distant reality that's not at all what Paul believes and what he wants you and I to believe. The universe, including the year that was 2020, is not just some random collision of events. God is drawing near. And if you believe Let's come to the closest here. If you believe God is distant and unknowable, that the world is dark and random, you'll give yourself over to a thousand sins. If you believe God is distant and unknowable and the world is dark and random, perhaps you'll despair of life. What does it matter? Perhaps you'll say, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Or perhaps you'll Worship creation rather than the creator. Despair, hedonism, idolatry, all of those took place in Athens. And they all take place in Harrisburg. But this passage reminds us that God draws near. And the point of Paul's sermon, even in, I love the way that the point of Paul's sermon, God draws near, he embodies in his sermon, using their terms, using their poets, pointing out their idols. Compliment them on their religiosity. He's modeling the way that Christ drew near to him. As Christ drew near in his incarnation and in the gospel story, so he still draws near in Christian ministry, true Christian ministry, in Christian preaching. And I wonder, just as a close, I wonder if there are people in your lives just be candid, they annoy you. So you cut them out. You don't call as much, you don't text as much, you don't email as much, you don't visit as much. Like your life's real people, you're doing that, probably, to some. And I wonder if instead, the takeaway for us is that God might be calling you to invite them over for dinner. I wonder if God has put you exactly where he's put you so that he could seek you and so that you could seek others on his behalf. I wonder. I'm going to pray, invite you to pray with me and invite the worship team back up to lead us into more songs. Heavenly Father, I just look at this passage and I just marvel at what the Apostle Paul swallowed, so to speak to be there and to speak to them. And I just have to believe he was overcome with the grace that you had shown him when he was far from you. Lord, I pray that that same kind of grace that you draw near to your people with, that you draw near to us with, would overwhelm us in such a way that we would become this type of Mars Hill, Apostle Paul type of Christians. We pray this in Jesus' name.